Hi, this is Matt Trefiro, host of Over the Edge, the only podcast focused on teaching you about edge computing, the grid, and the future of the internet. On this show, I interview experts and practitioners with deep knowledge and expertise in digital infrastructure and the software and technologies that support it. We'll even throw in a little metaverse, Web3, and cryptocurrency to keep it on trend. Join us each episode for a mind-expanding romp through the vast technological and business landscape that is quickly defining our new digital world. This episode features an interview between Matt Trefiro and Jennifer Fritchie, head of North American Telecom and Digital Infrastructure at Greenhill & Company, a leading independent investment bank. Jennifer has a career record of success in providing thought leadership, strategic vision, and business insight leading to significant business growth and shareholder value. She is considered a leading expert in the telecommunications services, cable, data center, and tower sectors. Jennifer is seen as a client-focused leader who is a trusted advisor and partner to clients, investors, and boards of directors. In this episode, Jennifer talks about navigating the continually changing world of technology, what aspects of it are missed most, and what is most important to consider when strategizing for your business. She shares insight on everything from the edge and the uncabling of cable to the importance of fiber, wireless, and data centers to shared infrastructures. Jennifer also discusses her recommended strategies for access providers in cloud computing, as well as her top technology trends for 2022. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by Dell Technologies to unlock the potential of your infrastructure with edge solutions. From hardware and software to data and operations across your entire multi-cloud environment, we're here to help you simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting Dell.com for more information or click on the link in the show notes. And now, please enjoy this interview between Jennifer Fritchie, head of North American Telecom and Digital Infrastructure at Greenhill & Company, and your host, Matt Trefiro. Hey, Jennifer, how are you doing this morning? Good. How are you, Matt? Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm terrific. And, you know, I always like to ask people because it's one of the most interesting questions is, how did you even get involved in technology? And, and you're coming from a business background, so I'm especially interested in that arc. Yep. No, absolutely. Like life, like a very weird, serendipitous turn. I came out of business school where I studied finance and investing and everything like that in 1995 and really wanted to get into equity research. And I basically was a sales assistant and made like, you know, limo reservations for bankers and restaurant reservations and nothing that warranted an MBA. And so I kind of kept knocking on the door of the research analyst to give me a job. And funny enough, I really wanted to be a retail analyst because I love shopping and things like that. But the only opening was for the telecom analyst to be their junior. So it was, it was just in 1997, I got that nod. And it's amazing what has happened since. So when you were a little girl, did you take toys apart and stuff like, or no, this was Not completely out of nowhere? Not at all. Yeah. I mean, I was a history major in college, liberal arts. And again, I would veer more toward, I mean, like the girly stuff. Again, loved shopping, loved decorating, love all that stuff. So to be in this kind of telecom centric world is, again, a, a very weird, strange path, but one where I feel very lucky. Yeah. I grew up 
wanting to be a scientist or an engineer. So I definitely had that, that, but uh -huh. I'm not, I'm a marketer. <laughs> and so coming into a, a field where you're surrounded by a lot of technology and mm -hmm. a lot of engineers and, and people that know way more than certainly that I do, how do you navigate that? What I think I'm good at is dumbing things down. You know, again, I like the story element of all this. So I'm able to, one, I feel like I have a very good gut read of people, which is invaluable as an analyst and a banker. But then secondly, I'm able to kind of take all the techie stuff and kind of say, okay, explain it to me like I'm a three-year-old. And then grapple that story to be able to repackage it to others. So it's, I mean, I'm sure there's some part of my left-handed brain that likes that, but I'm able to, I think, decipher it. And it's just really how things work. And again, the story of everything. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, uh, people ask me how I, I got good at what I do. And I said, I just ask a lot of dumb questions <laughs> and write down the answers until I keep asking them until I understand them. So but never a dumb question, never a dumb question. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, yes, if you can't understand it, then the person explaining it may not actually understand it, as I've discovered. What is your work now? I know you spent a long time at Wells Fargo. Well, it was yeah. a number of different companies, but yeah. ultimately became Wells Fargo. And, and what do you do now? So I left Wells Fargo right in the pandemic, July of 2020. And I really was sad to leave, but made the decision to leave because I was given a minority partner a niche position to be part of a spectrum fund. So a partner and I got together. We were backed by private equity and we bought a bunch of C-band spectrum. This is the spectrum that Verizon spent $50 billion on. We spent crumbs on the ground compared to that, but it was a lot of fun. And so we're holding that spectrum. And then during that time, I also took a few board seats. I sit on a few boards. And I say that because I, once the auction was over, I wanted to get back to a you know real job and really couldn't go back to equity research because of these board seats. So a company called Greenhill found me. So I'm now a managing director leading their com infrastructure services segment in North America. And we've been really busy in Europe over there. Greenhill is a purely M&A advisory firm. So we don't lend money. We're not what's called a balance sheet bank. So I really like it because it brings me back to what I missed most. And that was talking to management, strategizing, I have to say, I don't miss like writing notes or, you know, like um, being on every earnings call. But Green Hill has allowed me to do some fun stuff, which I think we're going to talk about, like my blog and whatnot. Yeah. Well, you still like writing because you I do. do. Have a, right. I, as I said that, I really, I don't miss writing like earnings notes that they missed earnings by two cents instead of three cents or whatnot. But I do, they allow me to do this, what I call Fritchie's Forum, which was named after my old Sunday night piece that I used to put out as an analyst. And I really like it because it's every other week I get to tackle a theme. The one I put out today should be published shortly, and it's all about Jim Carrey's Super Bowl ad. Oh, fascinating. That's that's completely unexpected as a topic. Yeah. That's yeah. that's neat. How did you connect that to infrastructure or, or did you not? Oh, well, I don't, you saw the Super Bowl, right? And it was the Verizon ad about the cable guy. And what's interesting about that is Verizon for the last five years has been talking about their wireless initiative for home broadband. And it's like life, it's taken a lot of stops and starts. But I thought the, the commercial was very telling because I remember once interviewing Ronan Dunn actually for Verizon. And as we were preparing for the interview, I was like, what's all this millimeter wave stuff? And he basically said to me, Jennifer, it's going to be the uncabling of cable. So it's really interesting to see that ad. I see. I see. So what is 
millimeter wave and what is the uncabling of cable? Yeah, so millimeter wave is a type of spectrum that's high band. It's north of 20 gigahertz of spectrum. And what Verizon is using with it, they've made several acquisitions, two of which um, were kind of head scratchers. And then they bought a number, a good amount, as did AT&T, of millimeter wave spectrum and various spectrum auctions, not, not the ones I was involved in. And what they plan to do with that is essentially offer fixed wireless access, which they are saying is competes with cable wired broadband. So if you think about it, Verizon has, I don't know the exact number, 110 million wireless subscribers where they've never been able to access broadband. For example, I'm in Chicago, so I'm a Verizon wireless customer, have been for God knows how long. But my incoming cable or, or my wireline competitors here in Chicago are AT&T or Comcast. So with Verizon, they can come to me with fixed wireless. They essentially can go outside their what's called franchise footprint in the Northeast to tap into, you know, a very high demographic wireless customer. That's really interesting. I hadn't realized that power of fixed wireless. So, yeah. so we've entered into, into a bunch of areas that I don't know that my listeners understand, or they may have heard of and think they understand, but don't. But what, what is a franchise territory? So franchise territory, if you go back to, I mean, we're going way back, but the breakup of AT&T in 1984... Full disclosure, I was in high school then. I wasn't an analyst. But the breakup of AT&T broke up into many baby bells. Baby bells were 9X, Bell Atlantic, blah, blah, blah. Eventually, Quest, US West, which became Quest, all of these regional telco carriers, which had franchise footprints. So if you think of where you can get your home service in Verizon, it's in the Northeast footprint. You know, I think it's seven or eight states from Maine to Virginia. And that's because when the bell was split up, that's what became Verizon, that portion exactly. of the national network. That's right. It essentially went through many versions of it, like 9X, Bell Atlantic. I mean, I'm guessing your listeners aren't old enough to remember this, but it was a lot. I am though. So. <laughs> so, so yes. And I lived in Chicago. I lived in a territory called Ameritech, which became part of AT&T. So right now to my home, I only have two choices of broadband providers. I'm sitting in my home right now. I'm riding over the Comcast network to talk to you. But again, if Verizon comes to me with a wireless access that competes with Comcast service, and I'm a loyal user to Verizon, have been for 15 years, I know and appreciate the brand, it could be a very significant moment for Verizon. And that's why I wrote about the Jim Carrey cable guy ad at the Super Bowl. <laughs> so. <Yeah. laughs> so so fixed wire. So I, when we think of wireless technologies, we... Mm -hmm think of our cell phones and roaming yeah. around and all of that. And fixed wireless is using the same spectrum that my cell phone might use, but there's an antenna on my house or my roof. And instead of aiming up like a satellite dish, it's aiming horizontal. And there's another radio somewhere that's pushing signal to it. And in this case of millimeter wave, you're saying that that, that, that frequency, that spectrum is, is powerful enough to deliver a satisfying broadband experience? So everything you said was right, except the part that your phone uses millimeter wave spectrum, because it, it doesn't, it's not really mobile spectrum. So it has, it's spectrum specialized for just the delivery of wide bands of data that would be for broadband, if that makes sense. But I also I often hear millimeter we've talked about in a IoT scenario or a factory scenario. Yes. And sometimes those are going to be mobile robots and stuff. So they're, they're, for IoT. Help, help me sort that through, yeah. 
Yeah, for, for, for the consumer wireless, just because, well, I should I should say I don't think so, but the, these phones mostly use, don't have band classes to support millimeter wave spectrum. So it might, it will support C-band 2.5, which is T-Mobile spectrum. It supports low band spectrum, but millimeter wave is really for either, yeah, IoT, where, where it's a fixed service where they can follow it, but it wouldn't be following me through the Grand Canyon to provide. Yeah. That. And it's, and millimeter was, I understand it's particularly challenging because the high frequency, it doesn't easily pass through trees or windows or doors or things like that so you do have to have this like clear line of sight and maybe and if it's moving some controlling of the radio to beam form at the thing do you have fiber do you have available fiber available no and that's what's even more i mean it's such an interesting time right now because like everyone we all live through the pandemic so when right now where i sit and i'm about 13 miles north of the city of chicago so i'm not in the sticks I have Comcast, as I mentioned, which offers about 300 megs to my home, and then AT&T, which offers maybe maybe 70. So I have three teenagers, a husband, myself, all working from home. I mean, we couldn't even, we never were AT&T customers just because we always needed speed, and then you layer in a pandemic, and it was just, I mean, it was, Comcast could have essentially told me what to pay, and I would have to have paid it because we were, that was our lifeline. Now what's more interesting, I mentioned I listened to your podcast, Walking My Black Lab. Now when I walk my black lab through my neighborhood, I keep seeing these little yard signs pop up. And those yard signs say AT&T fiber coming. And that is really, really interesting because now the, the sleeping giant has woken up and they've woken up to the need for fiber. So you're having AT&T come to, to where I live with a fiber solution. We mentioned Verizon. So there's going to be competition here. And I think it's going to be the key question to all this is what does cable do? What do you think cable's going to do? That's, that's what I want to know. I think cable's never asleep at the wheel. I think cable is, and we'll have to initiate more of a fiber deep architecture. It becomes a question though with Comcast because Comcast is not just a cable company. They own NBC, they are doing Peacock, they have theme parks. So there's a lot of pulls on their capital that AT&T struggled with and made a decision to divorce from media. Let's shift away from sort of consumer applications and let's talk about the infrastructure, which is the whole other side to this, which isn't the, the last mile delivery, but it's everything else. So tell me how fiber plays a role in the infrastructure and what's interesting about what's going on today. Yep. So fiber is really everything. Like I've often made the analogy when talking about wireless is like the cardiovascular analogy, which sounds weird. But if you think of fiber, it's really kind of the veins throughout your body. And then the capillaries at the end of that, those veins, I would say this is more for wireless are kind of small cells. And my love affair with the towers is the beating heart. Without that heart, no one's walking around or anything. So you need towers. But fiber really, I always say this, wireless needs wires. And full disclosure, I'm quoting the great Ray Chance here from ZenFi. But I think it is a very important quote because it just it's really the basis of every infrastructure you need. Data centers don't work without fiber related to them. Small cells don't work without fiber related to them. Towers, you need that back haul and front haul piece, which is the fiber going up. So in order to carry all this traffic, that fiber is the critical veins in your body carrying the blood around. So its importance really can't be overestimated. Does that explain why 
at least some of the tower companies have gone deep into uh, fiber acquisition? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. I mean, you're seeing these blurring of the broadband infrastructure silo lines. You have Crown buying fiber. You have Zayo going to the largest owner of towers on a private side, now public, with Digital Bridge. You have certainly American Towers purchase a core site going into the data center side. So I think it's beyond where these silos are transitioning because there's multiple needs for multiple customers. So to have, and really Gansey's product, what he's doing at Digital Bridge is the best example of it. I always say he has like his hands in multiple honeypots. He has a small cell platform with Boingo and Extinet. He has a tower platform with Vertical Bridge. He has a fiber platform with Zayo, owned, co-owned with EQT. He has a data center platform with Vantage, as well as Databank. And almost, in, in it, I would argue, Databank is really his edge play. So there's multiple kind of angles to that. So if you have a customer, let's just call it Microsoft, saying, I need this, and Digital Bridge will be able to pivot and say, I have this, I have this, I have this, what, where can I help you? It's harder when you only have one arrow in the quiver. Yeah. So what's really interesting is, and this is my simpleton brain, but I tend to think of a data center as something fundamentally different than a communication network. And I would think the skills of running a data center may be very different than the skills of owning a tower. How do you square all that in your mind? They absolutely are. I mean, a tower is, I think, the best model ever made because it's such a passive infrastructure. And I always used to joke the only cost to the tower was paying the taxes and mow the lawn underneath because there's really no embedded cost, which is why they're what we call contribution margins or every incremental dollar of revenue. There's like a 90% fall through to the margin. It's unbelievable. So data centers, you flip the script completely. I mean, you ever probably your listeners have been in a data center. You think of like the the finger point authentication at five points, the people who guard. It's a very active infrastructure. So you're right, it's very different, but yet Microsoft or Amazon or Verizon might need access to both. So you can at least have you're in the room for multiple conversations. And I think that's what American Tower thought with going toward CoreSite. What is their edge? You know, can you carve some of these second tier markets of a CoreSite and make them into an interesting edge play? Because I think if they all sit still while this market continues to change, not, there's not a risk to becoming irrelevant, but there's a risk to not, not being in the room for the conversation as long as others, I guess is how I'd say it. Well, speaking of Microsoft and Amazon, that's particularly interesting because both have announced different types of wireless strategies. So how does that work? Yeah, no, right. Friend or foe, right? I mean, it's it's really interesting to see how this all comes out. During my little break when I was doing my fund, I was talking to, I, when I came back to Green Hill in this role, I was talking to a former CEO that I've known for a long time. And he, his first quote to me was, Jen, how does it feel to come back and see Microsoft as a competitor? And so it was interesting, meaning of the telco providers. I mean, when I was an analyst, there was the tech analyst, there was me, there was the cable analyst, and we really were all separate silos. When AT&T bought Time Warner, the cable analyst and I kind of did our thing together with joint notes. But really, I was never writing about Microsoft. I mean, I did a little bit because I followed Equinix and Digital Realty, and obviously... The cloud providers are large 
customers of that group. But it's very interesting to see the likes of, especially I'd say Microsoft, talking about private 5G here. And from an infrastructure standpoint, I think that's a good thing because there's more customers for the likes of American Tower, uh, Zayo, certainly whoever, all the infrastructure providers to tap into. But if you're Verizon or you're AT&T, are you dancing with the devil that can spend a whole lot more money than you? I used to, when I was an analyst, I would get on these panels and say, AT&T spends more dollars in capital expenditures than any U.S. company just after the government. And right behind them is Verizon. And then I talk about tax reform and things like that. Well, now, I mean, that's in no way true. I mean, I don't know the exact numbers, but Amazon spends more in a quarter than either of those companies do in a year. So it is it is a different change. Now, I will say on the wireless side, and this I'm plantly putting on my Spectrum hat, those guys don't own Spectrum. They can play in the unlicensed space, and they've had a big win there. But if Spectrum is a finite resource, they don't have it. And so I don't care how much money they have. We've had Spectrum auctions that... I think every other future Spectrum auction that's going to happen, maybe with the exception of what's called Auction 108, which is 2.5 Spectrum, is going to have a shared component to it. So they're going to have a very tough time unless they buy a DISH or buy an AT&T, which in this- Which could happen. Yeah. I don't know. With Lena Khan, I'm not sure that's could happen, but I think it's going to be hard. I mean, they really can't have a wireless presence without going through one of those gatekeepers who own the Spectrum couple of interesting things. So historically, if you look like, let's say the last dozen years, maybe a little longer, the the last mile access providers have tried to go into the data center business and the data center companies have tried to go into the last mile access business, Google Fi and so on. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. arguably neither have been successful outside of their wheelhouse. How do you explain that? And then what's different this time? So let me make sure I understand the question. So Google Fiber, I, I would argue, was a win for Google, and I'll tell you why. Google Fiber was not at all successful in Kansas City or things like that. But the classic example is Austin. Once Google Fiber said they were going to go there, it was 31 minutes later, 31 minutes later, that AT&T put a press release out saying that we're going to wire Austin with Fiber. And so if Google's money or revenue is generated by clicks, I'm clicking a whole lot faster when I have fiber to my my house than I was with, not dial-up, but 70 meg speeds. So by just putting that kind of red curtain in front of the bull, a lot of fiber started coming. And therefore, we're all clicking faster, which is really Google's ultimate revenue model. Isn't the strategy that you, I agree that, that it seems that Google was employing there was to create some competitive pressure to increase broadband just, you know, access and capabilities so that they can generate more revenue by delivering new services and so on. But that doesn't mean that they running a successful last mile access network business. No. That just means they've got this toy that they can use strategically. But so the question I was asking is when they've tried to go into this business when the when the wireless access providers and I'm overgeneralizing a little yeah. bit, but the wireless access providers have to try or the any last access providers tried to go legitimately into the data center business, and vice versa. I I don't know that I can think of a very successful example. Can you? No, I mean like you, and you're talking AT and T's data center business, which they sold to Evoke, which is now part of Evoke. 
right? Uh, and then Verizon. Verizon. Equinix. Yeah. yeah, exactly. No, I would, I would agree. I mean, Verizon bought a company called Terramark and it, but I think it just became, this became out of their core, you know, and kind of the same analogy could be made with AT&T going into the media business. I think they got there and they realized, whoa, what am I good at? And I have, if I'm good at networks, I need to pay, if Verizon just paid $50 billion to get Spectrum, I need to be more nimble with my capital. I can't be in Hollywood, New York, dealing with CNN and movie studios and buy Spectrum at the same time. So I think they all kind of like towers too. It's like they knew, are these assets in the right hands or are they better? Can I, should I take my capital and shift it to where I need to go? Yeah, so so you mentioned earlier the tower business is like just such such a great business, right? Because it it's a it's passive. You buy you buy or lease for the long term lease land. You stand up a tower, which isn't that complicated, and everybody pays you to like occupy space, and you can release that space many many times. So one of the most powerful elements of the tower business and, and similar businesses, and I think data center businesses are very similar, is this concept of, of shared infrastructure. So not only is it great for me, because every incremental revenue source is mostly margin. My marginal cost is almost nothing, and I get all the revenues. You say nine, you say 95% drops to the bottom line? That's, that's oh my gosh, I, I, that's the business I want, right? <laughs> it's, it's like having a house that you can rent to 20 people and exactly. like stick them all on the roof. But the other benefit is, presumably, that they may lose the tower companies may lose some pricing leverage, meaning that now that my costs are lower, I might get squeezed more by the people leasing the space. And I guess my question here is part of the benefit of shared infrastructure is it lowers everybody's cost. Yes. And John Stanky would make that argument to Jeff Stoops or Jay Brown in a tower conference. But the the again, the beauty of this model though is the moat around it. So let's just play that scenario out. Let's say, I mean, I have a tower and I am owned, it's Jennifer's Tower Company owns it. Let's say it's right near Greenwich Avenue in Connecticut or pick your pick, pick another nice affluent city. So everyone's on it. I'm charging my fees and AT&T doesn't like the fee I'm paying. So they go to threaten to build another tower. Well, and then immediately I'm going to, me, Jennifer's Towers company is going to go to the Greenwich Town Hall and be like, I have space. I don't know why they want an ugly Greenwich Avenue with another big ugly tower when I have space and get the, I mean, the NIMBA effect, not in my backyard, really for these high affluent areas can't be overestimated. I mean, you can always build a tower next to another tower. We used to call them tower slums in parts of rural areas where there's no, but but in the high rent districts or even just where people want their phone to work, it's very hard to build another tower right next to it. And so you argue, that I would argue the tower companies in that case have the leverage, not the carriers. Does that change with small cells? Does that change with small cells? Small cells are not, I mean, we can get on a small cell conversation. There's a need for a ton more, but they're not as good a business. And even Crown, I think, would tell you this uh, as the tower business, because it is more of an active infrastructure. You're dealing with building owners. You're dealing with cities. You're dealing with municipalities. You're dealing with fiber operators. You're really running kind of a mini network. So it it is the mode is there, but not as much, I, I think. But like, for example, New York City has something like seven franchises. 
So if you have one of those franchises, you can build in that area, but it, there are seven players. So it's it's harder, and I'm not sure, don't quote me on the seven, but there's a num- maybe five to seven. But you get what I'm saying. Yes, it's a very, very different, very different business. That, that's really interesting. I mean, the show is nominally about edge computing and the yeah. future of the internet. So let's talk a little bit about that. I'm not going to ask you to define edge computing because actually right. I'm starting to not use the word anymore, uh, believe really? it or not. Because all, it's all just the internet. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's I, mean, I mean, I asked, I asked an analyst the other day, what's the difference between computers on premises and edge computing. And he's like, for a lot of use cases, it's exactly the same thing. It's just, a, it's a marketing. And maybe the control plane extends back to the, the GUI interface that a cloud provider offers, which, you know, is not trivial, but it's interesting. So, so when you think of edge computing as an, an advisor or an analyst, how, yeah. how do you fit that into the whole equation? What's the value? Where's it coming from? What are you seeing? Well, I mean, I, I guess I would say, where are the dollars flowing? Just to prepare for this podcast, I was just kind of looking at Colby's old report on Edge from Cowan, who does great work. And his estimates are $10 billion has spent, been spent on the Edge, like i got to look to my notes, in this year, twenty or last year, 2021. And that's growing to $116 billion by 2028. So a Kager, as we love in Wall Street, of 42%. And so where the dollars are flowing is the edge. Now, what is what is the edge? Is it at the base of a tower? Is it as a mini micro data center? Is it the car itself? You know, is the edge of a smart car? Go to Detroit to talk about that? I think that's right. So I don't know how you define the edge. I would agree. But I, for me as a banker, it's where those dollars are flowing. And I want to be able to capture some of those dollars in a way. That's actually a very interesting lens to look through, which is we're building data centers, for example, where data centers have never been built before, Yes. right? Mm-hmm. Where you might have built a street side cabinet to hold a baseband unit. Now you've got a rack of servers or two racks of servers or 10 racks of servers with GPUs and all these things that start to look like something that Microsoft and Amazon would have in some giant facility in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And right, that's interesting that where the, where the capital is flowing. That's yeah. fascinating. And there's another aspect to edge computing that I imagine is particularly interesting to the work you do, which is one of the most powerful use cases is actually running the network itself. Because you've got you've got network virtualized functions. You've got, I mean, you need edge computing in order to run a virtualized network. Oh, of course. I mean, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think that's something that's largely been lost when people are thinking about edge computing. You talk about autonomous vehicles and f- cloud robotics and all these really neat applications, the metaverse and so on. And, yeah. and yet there's this really prosaic need for edge computing, which won't have the same economics as, as the tower industry. But if you've already got to put a computer out in the field or a rack and you got to have got to cool it and it's running the network and it has to be there to run the network right. what else could you put in that space imagine the 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 cloud robotics example mm-hmm. right so that's me running an application and maybe I'm a different provider maybe I'm a, a, a wireless carrier and I'm running some application on on the compute that's out on the edge or maybe I'm Amazon or Microsoft and I'm running my own applications or I'm running somebody else's applications for them. Where are you seeing the dollars flow from a software perspective? How is that software investment getting deployed out, out into the field so from your perspective? It's I don't know if I could really comment on that because I'm not in the software world. I think what yeah, Vapor is doing is really interesting. but I, And I think that that software has to be, like, I don't think there's, frankly, my view is I don't think there's as appreciation, as much appreciation as there should be. 
for that software element. But I think in my world, it's like people are saying, yeah, you can have these cool trains running on these, all these different things, but the tracks need to be enabled to even enable the trains to run it. And so like, think of like three cable providers together. Why aren't they taking advantage of their network in ways beyond offering broadband to my service or like my home? Like they're the rails. AT&T has more rails than anyone. I think Lumen has very interesting rails that people should be paying attention to. Because again, this software side, I'm probably not the expert on, but that can't be enabled unless you have true infrastructure running to it to enable all the magical things that software can do. Yeah. And I think it's interesting that you live in this world where like things have physical qualities, right? I mean, so, so I mean, my, I, I came into the infrastructure business from the cloud. And so I was just kind of surprised and dumbfounded that data centers have moving parts. The cloud doesn't have any moving parts. Well, no, it's got lots of the fans and air conditioners and like all these things. And so, yes, you're making a really, really powerful point, which is there's a lot of like, like when we say infrastructure, there's, there's at least in my world, a tendency to, to, to think of software as being part of the infrastructure, but there's a yeah. very, very real part of it, which is like somebody has to trench the, the highway. Somebody has to put the physical glass underneath the ground and someone has to erect a tower and hang radios on it. And someone has to build the building in which all these servers operate and all of that. And that, that you, you almost get a, a you're right, a really profound view when you start from that perspective. Okay, where's the money flowing? And can I trace the path from an Amazon data center in Seattle all the way to some factory? And what does it have to pass through? And how fast can it go? And how much bandwidth? And how many different hands have to touch it? And can I optimize my application if all those hands need to touch it? And then as you said, these people that own these plants, the Comcast and the Verizon's of the world, like they must be looking at saying, well, What's the marginal cost to me to add a new service to an infrastructure that I already own and Spectrum I've already paid for? Right, right. And I think that like what you said about the trenching is really important because it's simple, but it's not easy, right? I mean, like the biggest cost to fiber, the fiber itself is just glass. I mean, that's really not expensive and there's supply chain, et cetera. But the trenching of the fiber is is very hard. I mean, it's finding labor in a period of labor shortage, fighting inflation, getting permits, digging the trenches, dealing with cold grounds in Minnesota in February. It's simple. It's not easy, I guess. Right. And once you have that, your job is to figure out how do I get as many people paying for it simultaneously? Right. How many radio companies can I? Okay, so you mentioned early on the the, the C band auction that you were part of, which is just a, a, a must have been a fascinating nine. I said my nine month stint to yeah. yeah to come out of this sort of analyst yeah. space and you know be a senior executive at this fund to 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 <laughs> buy all the spectrum. How does how does unlicensed spectrum and CBRS and the priority access licenses that I hear about how does all that fit in from your view? How does it fit into the equation? Sure, I mean so. For C-band, it was exclusively owned spectrum, no sharing component. We're clearing it from the satellites and be able to use that spectrum. So there's a lot with what's called the clearinghouse. But unlicensed spectrum and things like what Federated's doing is really, really quite interesting. This brings in the topic of private networks. CBRS spectrum is 
was the auction that happened before C-Band. It was much lower prices because it was more, well, it was a shared element to it. And cable, that was, I think cable's wireless play is through CBRS. And then you have others there too. So unlicensed spectrum is what, what the cloud service providers are going to use. There was a big win where that from the FCC where they got, I think it was about 1200 megahertz of dedicated unlicensed spectrum. So they have a lot to play with. And this brings in the discussion of private networks, being able to use that. Most of that is going to run off of unlicensed spectrum. Whereas the winners in the C-band were the ones who want they want the spectrum, they bear hug it, and they are willing to pay for it. Obviously, the largest bidders in that were the three main providers, as well as DISH. So you mentioned private wireless. What is that, and how does that fit into all of this? Well, I think that private wireless is, as you think about enterprises and what they want to do, and this is private networks. Like, think of, I was just at a conference where they were talking about Tesla's private network and some of their warehouses. I mean, this this is one of many examples. Like, in my top 10 themes piece in my blog, my quote on private networks is, we're at the base of the hockey stick. I'm married to a hockey player and my son plays, so I don't play. But <laughs> So I think that you're really begin, going to begin to see the growth here. And that is the deployment of enterprises wanting to keep like a walled garden, really, around some of their own enterprise that they don't have to rely solely on like the likes of AT&T, Verizon, but keep the networks, as the name would imply, private. Well, and... Interestingly, from what I could tell, the ATTs and the Verizons want to offer private network services. So how does that dynamic shaping up? I mean, who, well, who's going to go into this business and how is that going to work? So who has the touch point most with enterprise? I mean, AT&T is right there. So I think that... You so know, is Microsoft. And so is Microsoft. So, But they're partners, right? I mean, they're partnering together in certain initiatives. DISH and AWS are partnering together. DISH recently made an announcement about private networks. But again, I go back to what I said earlier, friend or foe. You yeah. know, you want to be close to, what is it? Be closer to your enemies than your friends. <laughs> Keep your enemies close. That could be yeah. a little bit of what we're seeing. Your friend's right. closer, your enemies closer. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So. so what would you do if you were a traditional carrier with this core business and you own all the spectrum and you probably own a lot of fiber? And, you know, as you mentioned earlier, it's really important to figure out like how you have finite capital. Yeah. Like where, where would you spend your money? I mean, I think AT&T is doing the right thing. I think AT&T had a moment where they said, I'm going to be in Hollywood and there's a need to be horizontally integrated. I, I think they realized wrong path, control, alt, delete moment and reverted. I mean, I think what AT&T is very, very good at is running networks. And why go somewhere else when you're not focusing enough on what you're good at? And so I think that John Stanky, you know, like him or hate him, I, I think he he made the right decision, albeit as painful as it was. So I think what I would do if I was the carriers is kind of do exactly what they're doing. I would say, I need to buy Spectrum. It's pay to play. I bought it. Now I got to deploy it. And now because the traditional wireless model is 120% penetration in wireless right now in the US. So you have to pivot to new different areas of growth private networks, IOT, you know, things like that, that can really drive and really enterprises that. And the touch point to enterprise is what both of them have, I would say, especially AT&T. So Jennifer, the comment you made about what business are you in? What should you focus on? Seems somewhat in contrast to the 
discussion we were having earlier where all these companies are going into different businesses. So, you know, the Microsofts and Amazons delivering some wireless services, maybe all wireless services, maybe purchasing a, a last mile access network. How do you rationalize, like, which strategy is the best? Is to, to recognize that, look, as a cloud computing company, I need to control my own destiny. And so I'm going to go all the way into last mile network. And if I can't get everybody else to deliver the last mile access in a way that helps me make more money, more clicks, and so on, then I'm just going to do it myself versus that's just crazy talk to try to go into that last mile access business because, as you said, are you as good at running a network as AT&T? So where would you bet? So if I, I guess it, the question is, which lens am I talking from? Am I in Redmond? Am I talking from Seattle, that lens? Or am I in Dallas or New Jersey, <laughs> talking from the AT&T or Verizon lens. I think- Well, let's, let's look at both. Let's talk okay. through both lenses. Yeah. yeah. So if I'm the cloud providers, I mean, I might disagree with one thing you said where I'm going to do it alone because I don't think you'd see Cyrus One or QTS being taken out by, you know, private, large private equity dollars if there was no room to grow with cloud. So they're certainly yeah. using third-party data centers to help. I mean, I think it's because demand- has been way above their expectations. So it was always the risk. Why Why would I own QTS when Microsoft can build a data center right next why to Why would I own a tower if Crown Castle or American Tower will do it for right, me? Right, 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 exactly. So I, but I think that it's, I think third party data centers are a little different just because the demand has been so hard to keep up with. So, I mean, when I was following data centers, 15 was a big order number. Now it's like 80. So megawatts. So you're, I mean, it, it's gone up in whatever, four times in two years. But I think if I'm Microsoft or Amazon or whatnot, I am thinking, because they're not really, I mean, their ba their main business is still their main business. You know, the cloud clearly is the important part of what, Amazon. What's, what's Amazon's main business? I know, that's as I was saying. <laughs> I saw, I saw you catch yourself on that, right? No, I hard. know, right, right, I don't know. I mean, I remember when Amazon was a bookseller. So, I mean, obviously. China. Well, and, and if, there are very few companies in history that have have been so successful in running such diverse businesses. Yeah. So Amazon may be a, a rightful unicorn. It is, but respect. I think with Jassy now in the helm, that shows you where having him come from the AWS background that's where I think their their focus is. But how how it plays in wireless is, I think, an open question. I mean, I don't see Amazon wanting to come be the next Verizon wireless where I'm going into consumer to fix my phone or get a phone for my 15-year-old. I mean, they, I just don't see that. But do Amazon they, has stores. They tried to have. A, they tried to launch a phone. They've got Kindle devices. They do, but I just don't see that. They don't own Spectrum. So okay. do they buy Dish and maybe work with him? He, possibly, but Dish doesn't have anywhere near the Spectrum on the mid-band side as now Verizon does or at and So, I mean, there there is that, again, walled garden where Spectrum's really important. And they can have all the money in the world, but because they chose to sit down during two big Spectrum auctions that just happened, that that's telling to me. Why do you think Spectrum hasn't gone the way of towers? That shared shared infrastructure. That's a, great, that's a great question. You know, I'm interviewing Ergen in a few weeks, and I actually that is such a good question. I'm going to add that to the list because I think that is important because you you do have these Spectrum plays where there could be 
a shared component to it. I think there is room for that. I mean, why you haven't seen it so far, the answer is Verizon and AT&T don't want to enable competition to come to them. Right? And yet they do. I can get a cell phone from Comcast and believe as a consumer that I'm on the Comcast global network, but yes, I'm true. using shared infrastructure. I'm, yeah. you know, well you're, you're, well, you're using it, but you're paying for it, right? You're, yeah, it's an MVNO relationship, but conversation coming back to where we started. Now you have Verizon coming right in their backyard, the Jim Carrey ad. So what does that mean? If you're Comcast, you're saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now my partner that I'm is coming right into my backyard and trying to attack my main cash flow source. I think that's a partnership you really got to watch. I mean, did the, again, you know, it's like, do we lock elbows or do we totally separate? I think it's a question. It certainly seems, and I'm surprised the the FCC didn't didn't realize this that it it might be better. I mean, see, maybe CBRS is the big experiment, right? Which is which is you know, can a lot of different entities use yeah. the same spectrum and share it effectively yes. for a wide set of use cases because yeah. that that may actually show that we could do it in other parts of the spectrum and maybe it should be readjusted based on that. So, so Jennifer, you wrote a post on like the the, the top ten you know trends that you're seeing in yeah. this year and and going forward. Like, pick a few highlights. Tell us the trends that you you see from your perspective that are important. Sure, I think private networks. I think that is a huge growth component. I think in building wireless is a really interesting area that we probably haven't talked about enough. It kind of works with private networks, but it's almost becoming its own separate silo of broadband infrastructure. Can you, uh, can you d define those, th sure. what the difference is? Yeah. Yeah. Just think of like a, your typical office building, it, building fiber to, or a wireless network to support wireless connectivity inside the building. A lot of the spectrum auctions that just, or the two spectrum auctions that just happened um, that auctioned off mid-band spectrum. The benefit of that spectrum is it's great. It's the basis for 5G, but think of it, it's been described to me as coming to a building, it acts more like a, a mirror versus a window. So it bounces off. So therefore you have to build from the inside out. And that's, that's important. I think that's, I think companies are trying to find ways to scale that. Who's doing the most interesting work there? Gansey with Extinet is doing very interesting work. Boingo is um, another one. Crown is doing that as well. But then, then it go falls way off. So you need, like, I think another scalable platform will emerge there. I think the other thing is we've talked a lot about infrastructure sharing. One of the trends that has been very popular in Europe and has been nascent here is the idea of open access networks. We were worked on a deal where we got a lot of money, about $500 million for a company called Sci-Fi Networks, which is truly an open access network. So they try to anchor some ISPs to share off that network. And so you have that side of it. I think fiber to the home, I just came out back from Metro Connect. It, unlike the name of the conference would apply, it was not at all about Metro. It was all about fiber to the home. I think that's interesting because everyone's walking around with a PowerPoint saying they're going to get to 40% penetration. Again, it's simple, not easy. So I think that you got to remember that. And I think that this is going to be the year of a lot of wireless infrastructure build. I mean, we've had these two massive spectrum auctions. That spectrum is worth a hill of beans unless it's built out. And macro towers will continue to, you know, be great. But now 
the pendulum's going to swing back to small cells. Whatever Dickens said, like the, the death of his small cells has been over-exaggerated. Now's the time. You really are going to have to have densification to support this. Yeah. That's super interesting. D- Jennifer, this has been an amazing conversation. I, clearly, we could go a couple more hours if we had the time. Before we go, can uh, you help the, the listeners understand how to find your blog and your interviews and all those great things? Yep, yep. So I um, do some work, and it's just fun work. We're digitalinfrastructureinvestor.com. It's a platform run by Ian Gillett, who's a great wireless I like him quite a bit. Yeah. yeah. And so he lets me write on the blog called Fritchie Forums. And we also do some interviews. In fact, Matt, I might switch switch seats with you one day and I get to interview you, put you in. I'd love to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So it'd be great. So that's, yeah, digitalinfrastructure.com. Awesome. And if people want to find you online, what's the best way to track yeah, mommy, you down? I don't do Twitter. I mean, I don't know. I should, but I'm LinkedIn. I definitely try to keep and nurture that LinkedIn profile. Love LinkedIn. Yeah. That's great. So. That's great. So all of these links and all this great stuff will be in the show notes. I encourage you to re- read Jennifer's blog. It, it's really insightful. And Jennifer, thank you very much for joining us on Over the Edge. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating and a review and tell a friend. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of our partners at Dell Technologies. Simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting dell.com.